welcome again uh, to CVP this morning. We are in the book of Romans, which is uh, every bit about the complications of having different folks come together from different cultural and ethnic uh, and religious backgrounds uh, to form this new thing called the body of Christ. And Paul is very focused on how we put together this amazing representation of God's kingdom on earth, lived out in the fact that unlike the world, we break down walls. We don't embrace the homogenous principle. We uh, show the weakness and the falseness of it, that uh, in Christ we are no longer divided by those things. And in fact, we come together and bring the richness of who we are transformed and sanctified in the sure knowledge of Christ's love to transform the world. We've used uh, the illustration of the green beast. Um, Zoe uh, was looking at pictures on my phone this morning and got a little bored of how many pictures of the green beast I now have on my phone. As we're putting the engine back in this 1970 uh, three-door Suburban. And, uh, and as we continue to use and stretch this illustration to its absolute limits, uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about how it is that as you put it back together that the human tendency when we talk about our faith and our life, and certainly the book of Romans, is what's the most important part, right? So we go running to Romans 8 or some passage we really, really like, or I run to Romans 5 in the first five verses about the difficulties of sanctification. We all have these passages that we may want to say are the most important, but if you're putting together a vehicle, if you're putting back together uh, this truck, if you don't have an engine with a transmission and the gears at the back in the rear that will all handle the same amount of horsepower or torque, it won't matter. So you can't say the engine's the most important thing if you don't have a transmission in a rear end that'll match that power. And having overbuilt your rear end with but no engine and transmission doesn't make that any more important. And so for Paul, as he writes this whole book, it's not as if he is saying, if you get this one section above all else, you'll get what I'm talking about. Far from it, what Paul is saying is this whole book is a way to unpack and understand what it means to be called to be one people and how it is that God has supplied the resources through His love and care through Jesus Christ and also the means by the Holy Spirit for us to follow in faith, which is what we'll talk about today, a road that the world would see as being profoundly foolish. And it wants desperately to know, what's the one thing I can do? And Paul is saying, the one thing you would choose to do will take you off the path of walking in the faith after Christ. So let's put the text in front of us. We'll start in 4. Uh, 9, and we'll read through uh, verse, uh, gosh, I think, what is it, 18, 17, 17. Hear now God's word. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This is the blessing of forgiveness. Uh, for all, uh, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him a, the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised uh, are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of the faith, the faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the ardent, uh, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham." who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would again Strengthen us through the unchangeable and powerful reality of a covenant God who is faithful generation after generation, who plants seeds and causes them to grow, who points out his love and grace even as he calls out his people. We pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that what is said would be useful for the building up of your people and true. And Lord, whatever is not true, and not useful for the building up of your people. May those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as we come to this text and we want to work through what Paul is working through with his uh, Roman recipients, both Roman uh, in the sense of nationality and ethnicity and Jewish folks as they're coming back in from the Claudius uh, exile, as they're filtering back into Rome, and these house churches are trying to figure out how to communicate and how to connect with one another and in what way they understand their unity, and what is most important in being the people of Christ and following the Messiah. And so Paul is working through here in these first four chapters those things which give God a place of saying, here is the problem with the human condition, and here is how Jesus is answering that problem of the human condition, and your access to that is by faith and not by a particular status, not by a particular born status, which is what was addressed initially in chapter 4. Are you Abraham's seed by biology? Are you genetically connected to Abraham? Does that make you a more privileged or does that give you salvation? And Paul's answer is no. And this morning, we're going to look at two more answers that he gives. Is it through circumcision in verses 9 through 12? The answer, of course, is going to be no. 
I don't think I'm giving too much away in the way this sermon is. There's not going to be some big surprise at the end of the sermon. So we'll just, it's well-trodden ground, but it needs, again, to be marinated in this morning. The second question is, is it the law? In verses 13 through 15, and the answer is again a resounding no. And then finally in verses 16 and 17, it is pistis, it is faith. A faith that a God who makes all things from nothing brings to fruition in the lives of believers. So first, is it circumcision? Now again, here is a little bit of Paul's argument that you'll see in Galatians. Probably some of a hangover from a discussion from Acts chapter 15. There was this running discussion about whether or not the act of circumcision was still necessary as a defining characteristic of those who were in the family of God. Those who are a part of his people. Do we need this outward symbol? How important is it? And of course, it is affirmed by Paul that it is actually after Abraham has left, after he has already acted faithfully and declared his faithfulness in word and in deed, that circumcision is added later. And there is a whole interesting understanding of what circumcision symbolized for the Jewish folks as they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. And there is uh, ways in which our culture is slightly awkward about those ideas of how children come into the world and why it was important that that particular act was done to sanctify the means by which the Messiah would come. And for Jewish folks and folks in many other cultures, that discussion is a lot less awkward. But there is a reason for it. And the point is that the Messiah would come through Abraham's seed. It is a fulfillment of part of what was predicted in uh, in, in Genesis 3. And now we know that it's not just the general seed, but it is through Abraham's family. And that becomes really important, and it becomes a distinguishing marking. But there's no need for it once the Messiah has come, which is why we move from circumcision to baptism. Because it's no longer a question of who are God's people and how will the Messiah come. The Messiah has come, and now the blessing to all the nations can be revealed because His Lordship is present. And we're going to unpack throughout Paul's ministry and throughout the era of the church that it is this bigger family, no longer biologically connected, no longer needing a particular sign and seal, but a new inclusive sign and seal, baptism, which is the sign of life, the birth already having happened. And that is put on both male and female because we're no longer looking for the Messiah. We know who the Messiah is and we are His children. His brothers and sisters co-heirs. This does have implications for our understanding of baptism. The act of baptism doesn't say, but that doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean that it isn't more than just a simple outward sign. Any more than circumcision was unimportant. Apparently it was pretty important to God because as Moses heads off to Egypt to see God's people redeemed, the fact that he hadn't baptized his own, I'm sorry, baptized, circumcised his own sons seems to have been something God was concerned about. And you can read that story in the beginning of the book of Exodus. 
It is important. And what Paul is saying here is in no way to suggest that it was merely an unimportant action that had no spiritual or physical reality. It does, but don't confuse that with it saving. That the fact that you have been circumcised if you were a Jewish person didn't mean you were therefore free from any other obligations. Any more than being baptized as an infant means that you are free from any other obligations as you interact with God and as you unpack and enjoy the blessings of what it means to be a recipient of a sign and seal of God's love. To understand Paul here as minimizing the importance of a sacrament is to fall into the traps of saying which is most important. Of not allowing God to say it's both important, but don't confuse what I'm trying to do. And certainly don't assume that simply because you've been circumcised You are now free and clear and can suggest in my presence that I do not have the right as God to lead and to shepherd and to encourage and to challenge and to rebuke and to comfort and to forgive on the basis of my own love and wisdom. You have no leverage over me because you've been circumcised. Circumcision is a sign of my love to be sure. But don't confuse an outward sign with the ability to manipulate the divine. Baptism also has been confused at times as being something magical. It is not. It is normal? Yes. Is it the point that our children, or as an adult, if you grew up outside the faith and are baptized, you say, that is the moment I remember where God put his sign and seal on me? Absolutely. Is Paul undermining the importance of circumcision? Absolutely not. He is disabusing us of the notion that it saves. Not that it's unimportant. Not that it doesn't really and physically communicate God's love and care and His plan and His purposes. He doesn't minimize it. He puts it in its proper context. So is being circumcised an advantage? Does that place us in a unique spot where we are saved? Is that what makes us uniquely His people? The answer is no. The next question goes on, well then what about the law? So if I'm not born into the family in some mechanical sense that just because I share Abraham's biology, I'm in a superior position. If that's been addressed, that it's open to both people born outside and inside Paul, uh, uh, the lineage of Abraham, Well, that's good news for the kingdom expansion and a blessing to all the nation. If I don't have to be circumcised, but there is now actually uh, a way in which because the Messiah has already been revealed, I am secure in faith in the Messiah alone. Well, that's good news. And again, that's reaffirming. That's actually true of Abraham because Abraham was not biologically anything but Abraham. He was a pagan. And so therefore, his faith in God is an indication that it's not biology. And of course, it's an indication that it wasn't circumcision because Abraham is declared righteous before the the covenant and the act of circumcision is ever given to him as a foretaste or as a pointing towards the Messiah. Well, Well, is it the law then? And Paul is going to show us again that 
Abraham was not saved by the law. He wasn't saved by biology. He wasn't saved by circumcision. And he wasn't saved by the law. He wasn't saved by good theology, is what he's saying. You see, the interesting thing here is that the law does not mean that they were checking boxes about whether or not they had or had not done certain things, although that was a part of what the Pharisees did. But as Jesus ministers and begins to challenge first century Jewish folks, not to mention what the prophets had done for hundreds of years, it wasn't whether or not Jewish folks were or were not good at checking off technical boxes of the law. They had always been experts. Some of the first prophets even going to the northern kingdom are talking about how they are trying to check off religious boxes. The prophets to the south are going to bring up the fact that your sacred feasts and your sacrifices are overwhelmingly distasteful to me as your God because you go through the actions of the law without understanding the heart of the law. You are checking off religious duty to be sure. You have the right ideas, but there's no application. Well, how do we know? Because there was no care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, or the alien at the gate. There are two themes in all of the prophets, and there are two themes in Jesus' ministry. You don't know how to love God, or you've stopped loving God, and therefore you are unable to love anyone but yourself. And therefore you take advantage of the other. And you provide for yourself before the other. But the law can justify even my most selfish actions. Hence Jesus' confrontation uh, with giving everything to God of Korban and then not taking care of your parents. That's just good functional theology. You give me a good theologian, I'll get you out of anything you want if the price is right. That doesn't matter whether you're part of the Northern Presbyterian Church or the Southern Presbyterian Church. If you're writing a check, I can get you a theology that justifies what you're doing. There is no theology which is going to save us. There is no adherence to the law that can save us because we will twist every law. Not only can we not achieve the perfect law as Jesus clearly unpacks in the Sermon on the Mount, but even when we have it, we will twist it to reduce it. And that's what the quote on the front is about. You have a quote that says, first and foremost, people can't be human if they're Indians. So we will make them into who we are. And then there's the reminder of the quote that the thing we do to the oppressed is deny their very humanity by saying you should be something or someone else. You should be like us. You should be Jewish. You should get circumcised. You should have the law. You should be biologically like us. That's how you know you'll be saved. You should be like us, whoever the us is you should have our laws you should have our perfect theology but the law does not save in fact what it does is it stirs up God's wrath you see the Jewish folks got such strong words from the prophets because they knew better they had the law revealed what the Greek here is saying is not that Greek people, not that Roman people were without guilt before God. 
Chapter 1 already took care of that. Everyone is culpable before God because everyone has hidden a knowledge of the divine, has hidden from a knowledge of God. This is the fact that those who actually know, who have Scripture and pervert it and ignore it and deny it, stir up God's wrath. God does not write books to the, to the people who are not his people. But it's those who know the law and reject it, who refuse to embody the very character and nature of God that the law reveals, a law of grace and love, humility and service, of unconditional love and generosity. That's the law that God reveals even in the complications of the first five books. And to take that and pervert it, Paul says, is to stir up God's anger. Jesus' strongest words are not for Samaritans. They're not for people in the Decapolis. They're for the Pharisees. They're for the high priests. They're for the Sadducees. Not because he loves them less, but because they have such a rich heritage. That longing and desire to see them embody and enjoy the fullness of who they were meant to be. And instead, they've spent it on wild living. Or they've simply sat at home and thought about what a cruel master their father was. They've either left as prodigals or stayed home bitter as older brothers. And the law, the law has embittered them both. So Paul wants to make clear that it was not the law that was ever going to save them. That they should abandon any such expectations because it only reveals how deep the human heart really goes. The tragedy, right? And you know, you know me, I could unpack this for days. But I know my heart. And I know that I absolutely would have been the first person to raise my hand as I faced the, the, the chariots of Pharaoh coming and the Red Sea at my back and said, Moses, you clearly led us here to die. And then... God would spread the Red Sea and I would walk by on dry land. I'd get to the other side and I'd go, by the way, did we bring enough food? We, you know, we had pots of meat back in Egypt. These are people seeing the power of God and yet the human heart is such that I can go to my own depravity zero to 60 in no time flat. And the notion that I have somehow morally transcended that because I live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to put more faith in myself than I should. Without the grace of God, by, without the Holy Spirit, I will complain against every time God does not provide what I want, when I want, at a moment's notice. The law crushes me because I cannot seem to love my neighbor as myself. 
I can never embrace the law as salvation. I can never embrace my theology as superior, as a way to make me feel like I'm somehow achieved something other than the person beside me. It's not that Paul doesn't love the law. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the law. Not a jot or tittler will go away, Jesus says. And Paul unpacks the law his entire life in light of Jesus, and he loves it. But it never saved him. So what does? Again, we hear it ringing time and time again in verses 16 and 17. Faith. Pistis can also be translated loyalty. Loyalty to Christ alone. It's a crazy idea. You don't go gallivanting off into the desert. There is no food. There is no water. That is not a good place to take however many tens of thousands of people were leaving Egypt. You have to be kind of foolish. Or, foolish in the eyes of the world, but faithful to a God who is redeeming and leading us through the wilderness. The challenge we always face is that worldly pragmatism, what functions or seems to here, intelligence, wealth, power, who my father was, what schools I went to, whether or not I have worked harder than you and abided by the laws, Any way that I can rationalize my own progress and my own security. What gives me comfort when disaster hits? It's only when we're willing to let the Creator God, the one who makes everything out of nothing, tell us what real wisdom is, calls us to follow Him as Abraham did a man well beyond years. And his wife, well past prime years as to be a mother. And to take a faith of a God who is the creator who can bring life out of nothing. Who can bring a child into an older and what has historically been barren womb. A God who can lift a small people out of nothing and restore them in such a fashion that their wisdom And their small faith in the one true God has continued to shape all of history. And that God then taking a crucified Messiah with 120 people in an upper room and by the power of the Holy Spirit changing the very ethics and character and nature of the Roman Empire in such a fashion that today we cannot imagine seeing as permissible most of the things that Romans saw as normal. The power of the gospel to transform comes from outside the system. It is wisdom and power that loves the other in a way that allows Jew and Gentile to share the same church. Inequality. Because the thing that marks them out is their faithful following of Christ. That is how we begin. It's how we spend the middle and end of our lives. And it is how we will spend eternity. 
Because the notion that on the other side of glory, I will know everything I need to know about following Jesus is absurd. I can't imagine what it'll be like to follow Jesus without my own sin and perversion. It will, I imagine, be somewhat easier. But following in the footsteps of Jesus, the faith to learn and grow and understand my big brother and the eternal realities of a God who is generous and loving and infinite and brings life out of nothing, this faith we start now is the way we will live and can live and will delight to live for all eternity. It doesn't change. That's why circumcision, the law, or who my birth parents can't save. Because none of those things are eternal. In the sense that my adherence to the law, or my having participated in a particular religious rite, or who my biological parents were, what is eternal is faith. It will never change. It was what Adam and Eve left behind. Did God really say? Can you have faith in God? Maybe he's hiding something. Maybe he's not giving you all you deserve. Maybe you should have faith in you and your desire to get what you want. It is the same temptation they faced. Who will you have your ultimate security and faith in? The answer has always been the same. Salvation, life, always and only comes through faith in the Creator who brings everything out of nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you that you don't change. And yet, Lord, you, you pursue we thank you that it has always been and always will be a trust in our Creator, faith in you that has marked us and marked your people. Lord, make us people of faith in ever greater degrees. In Christ's name, amen.